0: I hope that you have been having a great and wonderful day. And my day has been a little bit on the adventurous side. (laughs) But nevertheless, I am here. I am here. But my day is not over. Uh, Even after we finish up here, I still have one more class to teach tonight. So, um, I'm excited about what we are sharing tonight. We are back in the book, A Black Woman Did That, and we have three profiles, I call them profiles of courage, that we're going to be looking at on tonight, and also I want to remind you that tomorrow we're going to have two authors live with us, they're going to be reading from their own books, telling us about how they got started, why they're writing, and where we can find their work so i encourage you to uh, make sure that you tune in make sure that you invite other women to the broadcast and uh, i look forward to hearing from those authors tomorrow so our advertisement for that will be up a little bit later this evening on ig but it's already on our facebook pages black table talk and daring dialogue so if you want to go over there and uh, share that announcement out so we can have some more fellow book lovers and book readers on tomorrow. So again, the book that we're reading from is A Black Woman Did That. And tonight we want to take a look at a young lady by the name of Beth Ann Hardison. And then we're going to take a look at Alice Walker. Most of us know her work, but we might not know about her actual background. And then we are going to end with um, a young lady by the name of Amy Sherrill. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that I am a huge fan of Amy Sherrill. She's a peer in the art realm, uh, but most people know her through her historic painting of Lady Michelle Obama. So we're going to learn a little bit more about Amy Sherald, on tonight. But let's start with Beth Ann Hardison. Beth Ann Hardison's name is synonymous with high fashion. Raised in Brooklyn, one of New York City's five boroughs, she attended George Wingate High School in a predominantly white neighborhood at F- of Flatbush, a bus ride away from the black neighborhood of Bedstoy or bed where she lived. She was culturally outnumbered, but the experience was, quote, one of the best things that ever happened, she said, giving her the confidence to excel in any kind of situation. She did well in her classes, made friends, and got involved in extracurricular activities, too. She even became the school's first Black cheerleader. After high school, she attended New York University's art school, but she didn't do so well. I was so bad, I didn't know how to draw. I didn't know anything, she said in an interview. She went on to study merchandising at the Fashion Institute of Technology. While there, she got pregnant with her son. Her mother and grandmother in particular helped Beth Ann raise her son. She didn't have any set plans for the future, but Beth Ann was willing to work hard. She took jobs at a telephone company in a hand-painted button factory and once even worked as a corrections officer at a prison. At the time, she was 21 years old, guarding women who were the same age as her. She has said, I had to act tough because the inmates challenge you. After that, she found a job in Manhattan's garment district, the heart of America's fashion industry. She learned on the job about how clothes were designed, constructed, and merchandised. In the past, the fashion industry excluded black designers, but it began to open up in the 60s and 70s. A young black designer named Willie Smith saw Beth Ann around and thought she'd be a perfect muse, the person who serves as a source of inspiration for an artist. She agreed to work with Willie and he created new designs with her in mind. Soon, others sought her out as a model. Bernie Ozer, a fashion buyer who had a huge influence over trends in the fashion industry, put her in a runway show. Beth Ann credits Bernie with putting her on the map. Bernie loved the theater and showmanship, and he saw something special in Beth Ann. I was theatrical, she said of her first show. I didn't walk like the other girls. I performed a bit. She brought her background as a child tap dancer to her performance as a model. When you tapped, you had to wow the crowd. Beth Ann was hired as one of 10 black models to walk the runway in a show at the Palace of Versailles in France in 1973. The event began as a fundraiser to help restore the more than 300-year-old palace, but it became much more than a fashion show. It turned into a competition between American and French design houses. The French took great pride in being recognized as the leaders of the fashion world, so the stakes were extra high for American designers. But they had a secret weapon, a group of models with a look and style of movement that Europe had never seen. This incredible group of models included Pat Cleveland, Norma Jean Darden, Alva Chen, and, of course, Beth Ann Hardison. The brown-skinned beauties brought energy and excitement, prancing and dancing down the runway. In contrast, the European models had a straightforward, expressionless way of walking, so they would not draw attention away from the clothes they wore. The Americans combined elegance with movement and emotion, making the clothes and the movement even more memorable. There were more than 500 people in the audience, and it was unlikely that most of them associated black people with high fashion. I defied everyone in that entire audience, Beth Ann recalled. I really let them know that we are here to take this because we have been put down so much. Well, the black girls rocked, the American designers won the Battle of Versailles, and the show became the talk of the fashion world. Beth Ann's look and personality took her to the top as a model from the late 60s through the 70s, but afterward she took a new career path. She became a fashion consultant and joined a startup modeling agency called Click, where she booked models, produced fashion shows, and helped grow the business. Then her friends convinced her to start her own company, Beth Ann Management. She launched the company in 1984. She nurtured the careers of young talent and seasoned models, including models of color who didn't fit a European ideal of beauty, including Veronica Webb and Tyson Beckford. In 1988, Beth Ann co-founded the Black Girls Coalition to celebrate and provide advocacy and support for African-American models. In the mid nineties, when she noticed that models of color began to disappear from runways and magazines, her mission began to change. She used her influence in the industry to speak up about the rise in racial discrimination in fashion She wrote letters to industry leaders challenging them on their hiring practices. She brought together influential members of the fashion industry, writers, editors, agents, managers, and models like Iman to hold a press conference to find ways to encourage change. People credited her leadership style as a factor in the fashion industry's progress. Rather than accuse the gatekeepers of being racist, she showed them how their business decisions could make a negative social impact. To the surprise of many, they not only responded with respect, but also stunned her with awards, including the 2013 Frederick Douglass Award and the Council of Fashion Designers of America Founders Award. At the CFDA Awards, she told the audience, I'm not here to put anyone down. I'm here to bring everybody up. Now, fun fact. Ann's son is actor Kadeem Hardison. He famously played the character, Dwayne Wayne, on the hit television show, A Different World, from 1987 to 1993. Alice Walker. $3 cash for a pair of catalog shoes was what the midwife charged, Alice Walker wrote, about being born on a cotton farm in Eatonton, Georgia. Her parents were sharecroppers and her mother later became a maid for the farmer's family. Together they lived on the same land where they worked. The land-owning farmer and his family lived in wealth on the same land where Alice, her seven siblings, and their parents lived in poverty. Sharecroppers cultivated and produced the landowner's crops, but rarely reaped any profit. The poverty that marked her childhood was one thing, but the discrimination her family experienced because they were black was another. She says, I grew up in the South under segregation, so I know what terrorism feels like. When your father could be taken out in the middle of the night and lynched just because he didn't look like he was in an obeying frame of mind, and when a white person said something he must do, I mean, that's terrorism. Alice's mother cleaned the farmer's house, but she also stood up to him like she did to everybody else. Once, he came to their house and told Alice's mother that her children needed to be out in the fields picking his cotton and working his land. Alice says her mother defied him and replied, these children are my children and they're going to be educated. Instead of putting her children to work, she put them in school. Alice was enrolled in school when she was four years old. The worst thing that happened to Alice as a child occurred when she was eight. While playing with her older brothers, she was injured in a BB gun accident that left her scarred and blind in one eye. Her self-esteem withered and she retreated from other people. Ultimately, though, her injury led to a new passion, reading and writing. Reading introduced her to new ideas and places, and writing was a way to express her feelings. By the time she boarded a bus to Atlanta to attend Spelman College, she knew what she wanted to do with her life. But something happened on the ride that gave her another life's work. The driver asked her to move from the front of the bus to the back at the request of a white passenger. In that moment, Alice came to believe that she would have to be politically active in order to achieve enough freedom to write. The white bus driver and passenger could get away with racist behavior because they had a system of injustice behind them. Therefore, she needed to add social justice work to her vision for her life ahead. After two and a half years at Spelman, she transferred to Sarah Lawrence College in New York, where she completed her undergraduate studies. She returned to her home state after graduation and joined efforts to register voters in districts where black political participation was being undermined. She also began to teach low-income children in a program called Head Start, graduate here, which was backed by Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm. The civil rights movement was at a high point and Alice was an active participant in demonstrations and protests as she began to create a body of literature. Alice was living in Mississippi when she wrote The Third Life of Grange Copeland, her 1970 novel about a sharecropper like her father, and when she began Meridian, her 1976 novel about a civil rights worker like herself. She brought life experience and her political worldview to the craft of storytelling. In the late 60s, Alice added the women's movement to her scope as an activist, and she soon discovered that black women were not well represented. She felt that the label feminist and the ideas associated with it did not reflect the experience of Black women, and she wrote about it in a 1983 collection of essays called In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. She coined a new term, womanist, to apply to Black women and women of color. A womanist, in her words, loves music, loves dance, loves the moon, loves the spirit, loves love and food and roundness. Womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. Alice's nonfiction work established her as a critical thinker and a feminist icon, but it is her fiction that touched people of all backgrounds and earned her the biggest audience and greatest commercial success. Her 1982 book, The Color Purple, tells the story of Celie, a shy young woman who was abused by her husband, Mr., until she learns more about herself with the help of a few loving friends. The novel is told through letters that Seely writes to God, who she believes is the only one who listens to her and to her beloved sister Nettie, a missionary in Africa, with whom she has lost contact. The book, both heartbreaking and inspiring, won a Pulitzer Prize, one of the greatest awards in literature. Alice, Alice Walker's daughter, Rebecca Walker, is a respected writer in her own right. Inspired by her life, Rebecca wrote A Day, A Love Story the story of a biracial American girl finding love in Kenya. Music legend Quincy Jones was so moved by Alice Walker's novel, The Color Purple, that he jumped at the chance to produce the film version. He wrote all of the music and asked Steven Spielberg to direct the movie. Beloved actor Danny Glover and newcomers Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey were cast in leading roles. The Color Purple is a classic American story appreciated all over the world, It has even been turned into an award-winning Broadway musical, by the way, of which uh, Fantasia is going to be playing the part of Celu. Alice Walker said this, Part of what any writer does is to try to help you see what it is they see. That's really all you can do. You can't make people change if they're not moved to do it, and that's why we have writers, poets, fighters, and dancers. And... Our last reading for tonight is Amy Sherrill. Amy Sherrill was born to make art. In the second grade, she entertained herself in English by drawing little pictures at the end of her sentences. She looked at paintings of the old masters, also known as European painters from the mid-13th century to the mid-19th century, in encyclopedias. Later, she took art classes in school and in private lessons after school. Despite her passion for the field, she didn't feel like art was something she was supposed to do professionally. Amy went to an art museum for the first time when she was in the sixth grade, but it didn't happen again until she was in college. Like many families where she grew up in Columbus, Georgia, her people were more into Bible study than going to museums and art events. She took art classes at Spelman College while she earned her undergraduate degree at Clark Atlanta University. Then she got her Master of Fine Arts at Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore in in 2004. But she decided to do something very different next. She trained to compete in a triathlon. She felt fit and healthy and decided to get a checkup before the race. That's when she found out she was suffering from cardiomyopathy, a form of heart disease. A tough decade followed next for her. She had been waiting tables to support herself, but now the money would have to go toward medical expenses instead of her art career. She had loved ones who were in need as well. Amy returned to Georgia to lend a hand to her mother and her aunts, but then her brother was diagnosed with cancer. Her hands were so full being a caretaker, she didn't paint again for several years. When she was ready, she returned to her art practice and her day job in a restaurant in Baltimore. She carried on for a few years more before her heart condition caused her to fall ill. Doctors said she would need a heart transplant. She was receiving treatment in a hospital when she got the news of her own brother's passing. A few days later though doctors confirmed that she would receive a new heart. I didn't realize how strong I was until I lost my brother and losing him only made me want to live my life even harder. Amy came through the transplant surgery with a renewed sense of purpose. Like many other young artists, she pursued residencies and submitted her work for projects and exhibits. She found some success. Her work was hung at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum in Baltimore in 2013, but the competitive fine art market is more difficult than it appears. In the beginning of your career, your paintings can be selling for $8,000, $10,000, $12,000, but you're only making half of that. Gallery owners take a commission from every sale. Artists live on the rest. For an artist who finishes 10 or 11 paintings a year, that's not much money. On top of typical expenses like rent, food, transportation, she had the cost of studio rentals, paint, canvas brushes, and other supplies. Amy's big break came when she landed a solo exhibition at the Monique Maloche Gallery in Chicago. Not only did her work sell, but she also had a waiting list of people who wanted to buy her paintings. One of the things that makes her style stand out is her use of shades of gray, also known as grisaille, to create the skin tone in her portraits of people. She does not use warm browns that people are more accustomed to seeing. She developed the approach the way many artists and scientists do, by accident. Amy's confidence in her style and her commitment to her craft paid off, even if it didn't please everyone. At first, Amy's mother was confused by this passion. <laughs> And this is a very good uh, rendering of Amy Sherald and what she looks like in real life. Her mother was confused by her choice to pursue art. But by 2016, when Amy won a National Gallery Portrait Competition, her mother finally saw the wisdom in her daughter's choice. She said to Amy, oh, my goodness, this is what you've been doing all these years. You're kind of a big deal. Neither of them knew that six months later, she would be selected by First Lady Michelle Obama to paint her official portrait. The National Portrait Gallery commissioned Amy to create two copies of the portrait, which would hang in the White House in the National Portrait Gallery. As well as being a history-making first, working with Michelle Obama was really fun, she shared. Since unveiling her portrait, Amy's career has skyrocketed. I am relieved that I can pay back my school loans. But she's just as excited to discover that kids know who I am now. Amy Sherrill, the first black woman to paint an official portrait of a first lady, is not only a critically acclaimed artist, she's also a role model. For me, it's been important from the beginning that the works that I've made end up in museums so kids can see people who look like themselves in institutions. Children can look at my work and see somebody who looks like them and be empowered by that. I've gotten a lot of letters from children who are interested in the arts who weren't interested before and are now engaging on a deeper level. Amy Sherrill was hired to portray Brianna Taylor for the cover of Brand- of Vanity Fair in the September 2020 issue. Taylor's death in her Louis- Louisville, Kentucky home energized the movement against unjust police violence. I wanted this image to stand as a piece of inspiration to keep fighting for justice for her. And those are the black women that are doing it Beth Ann Hardison, Alice Walker, and Amy Sherrill. All women in the arts, one in fashion, one in uh, journalism, in writing, in authorship, and one in the visual arts. If you would like to share your thoughts and insights on the three women that we've talked about tonight. Please feel free to hit that camera so I can bring you on for some conversation. And if you are listening by Anchor, I want to thank you tonight for your time and attention. Don't forget to join us tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for our Women in Reading series. Take care, be well, and be light.